Welcome back, class, to Social Ecology School. As you all know, the Revolutionary Project is an educational project. Today, we're going to be talking about Hegel's dialectics, Marx's dialectics, and how social ecology attempts to dialectically sublate these two modes of dialectics. Uh, teacher, no, we want no. to talk about legends. You know, I mean, kids, politics is about ideas. It's not about specific people who are particularly great and celebrating. That's not the actual heart of the matter. Teacher, it helps us to digest philosophy, to conceive of it in terms of a narrative of individuals. Yeah, it helps us understand. It's just storytelling. It's easier. Okay, fine. Okay, yeah, calm down. I mean, if this was the first class, I think this would be totally the wrong way to go. And that's not to discredit Bookchin himself, and he certainly was a very intelligent man and did a great job of synthesizing and being part of a community that came up with a lot of great ideas. And he was an innovator in many cases. I don't mean to denigrate him in any way or, or his achievements as an individual. Just what I would emphasize, kids, and this is an important part of understanding the value of deliberative interpersonal democracy. Good ideas don't just come from individuals. They come from communities working together. Even if you come up with a great idea, it's almost certainly inspired by someone else. And a great part of social ecology was the synthesis of useful ideas that came before it. It's just a contingent fact of history that this is where the ideas that we call social ecology comes from in that frame in the modern context, but these ideas can be found all over the world, in various cultures, various places. Great. So tell us about Bookchin yeah, now. We would be lost Bookchin. without Bookchin. Bookchin. No, Bookchin. No, shit. There's an enormous community of brilliant people contributing to these ideas. So Murray Bookchin was basically raised by the New York Communist Party. His parents were communists, and he grew up in that context, being like a street corner person who would yell to crowds, try to get attention, rant and polemicize about the capitalist world order and the inevitable triumph of communism. So he was himself, as he was growing up, sort of a Stalinist during the time of Stalin. But he started to feel the official party line was changing too much because it was coming from Russia. It wasn't democratically decided by the local organization. There was sort of a party line that went around the world around things like geopolitical matters. And he found himself contradicting what he had said weeks before on the podium and feeling like he was lying. He was being untruthful in some way, making these compromises he didn't like. And from that, he became interested in Trotskyism. And he was a union organizer in factories. In the factory organizing context, he found that the hierarchy of the workplace, the idea of bosses and employees, was very naturalized to the workers there, and that they weren't particularly interested in communist revolution. And it seemed to him that the premise that industrial workers were going to be the engine and change around the world that would lead to a revolutionary change in society needed to be re-examined based on his experience as a union organizer himself. And it was around this time he became interested in the emerging science of climate change and ecology. He was one of the first people to engage with the issue of climate change overall, but in particular, the first on the left to start talking about a leftist critique of climate change and his interest in anarchist, anti-hierarchical theory. He was synthesizing into what at first he called post-scarcity anarchism, and later he called social ecology. He was an autodidact studying history, studying different perspectives of different pre-existing authors and attempted to synthesize something. That synthesis is great. That synthesis is worth praising. It's something we should try to do ourselves. But Bookchin himself in his lifetime saw the way that the hero worship of quote unquote great men could be a degenerating force on people's ethics, autonomy, and it could even give rise to personality cults, like literal cults he saw in person on the left. He thought that was a horrible thing to happen. And really, social ecology is not about 
having anyone on a pedestal from on high telling other people what's right. It's about finding ways and thinking together about ways of how we can build a society that either abolishes pedestals altogether or gives everyone a pedestal where we can, instead of looking down or up at each other, finally find it within ourselves to look at each other eye to eye. So remember kids, Bookchin, other theorists, they're great. But ideas are built collaboratively. Even their ideas were built collaboratively. I trust every one of you to look through those ideas, pick apart what's right, wrong, and make your own version. No person or specific ideology is the epistemological source of truth in itself. We have to build the ideas together. Okay? All right, go to recess. everybody and welcome back to the seriously wrong podcast i'm sean my name is aaron and today we're talking about social ecology we're presenting social ecology (laughs) just imagine big red curtains parting at the beginning and end of every sentence and what's behind the curtains is a special episode that was produced in partnership with the institute for social ecology so we interviewed a little over a half dozen a baker's half dozen which is seven (laughs) So we interviewed a baker's half dozen of social ecologists connected to the Institute for Social Ecology, which was the organization that Murray Bookchin founded with Dan Chodakoff. So Dan's one of the people that we spoke to for this episode. But before we get to that, let's just have to do a little bit of unfortunate technical business, which is just inform everyone. This show is funded by Patreon. Viewers like you donating to Seriously Wrong is how the show is produced. So without you, we couldn't do this. So thank you so much to everyone who's already doing that. You can find it at patreon.com slash seriously wrong. And likewise, the Institute for Social Ecology is partially funded through Patreon. There's links in the description. And if you want to contribute, it's massively appreciated. A lot of times I found if I'm just like, hello, social ecology, people are often like, what is social ecology? Why are you saying that? There's no good answer to the second question, but the first question was something that we asked Dan about. Dan Choderkoff, I co-founded the Institute for Social Ecology with Murray Bookchin in 1974. Yeah, even as someone who's been pretty involved in social ecology for a while, I feel like I've also found it really confusing. So the question, what is social ecology, is just so important. At the top of this episode, we got to do a speed run. We just got to let people know. So we got Dan in on that, and we also are going to hear in this segment from three other educators, past and present, who've worked with the Institute. My name is Blair Taylor. My name is Eleanor Finley. My name is Peter Staudenmeyer. You know, all the people that we spoke to for this episode, they come from different backgrounds, different specializations. And I think by speaking together. Yeah, having a chorus of good communicators with interesting ideas who know about social ecology, all speaking together on a topic. There's more than the sum of its parts there. When you start having all these different voices speaking together, it's been a privilege working on this. So what is social ecology? 
Social ecology is an ecological philosophy developed by theorist Murray Bookchin starting in the 1960s up until his death in 2006. Social ecology looks at the relationship between human society and the natural world and tries to understand the role of human society in natural evolution. And we believe that in order to do that, we need an understanding of what nature is that goes far beyond the way that it's explained and explored in the popular imagination. And we also need to develop a critical understanding of the role that humanity has played in shaping nature and in shaping the environment that we live in today. And we do that through a variety of approaches. We draw on history and anthropology, philosophies of nature, biological science, particularly ecology and evolution. It includes a complex philosophy of nature. It includes an equally complex social theory or a set of theories about different kinds of human societies. It is also a political tradition. It's one that stretches back for the last half century, give or take, a political tradition that grew out of several different roots. Anarchism is one of them. Mid-20th century versions of radical environmentalism is another one. Bookchin was trying to reformulate anti-capitalist critique from the 50s on. He was really one of the first people to articulate this ecological critique of capitalism, centering on the irrationality of the profit motive spurring capitalism to ever expand across the globe, devouring ecosystems as it goes, famously describing the logic of capitalism as the logic of the cancer cell that literally consumes the host that it is dependent upon for existence, that humanity is dependent upon for its own existence. That blew my mind a little bit. What Blair just said, the idea that capitalism is bad for the environment. It's just such a common sense idea that like so many people believe the connection between that idea and social ecology was fascinating. For a long time, environmental concerns were not a universally understood thing on the left. It was not something that everyone integrated into their politics. It was often even criticized from the left as like liberal or something. So social ecologists were sort of the ones really pushing this at the advent of the ecological movement. Interestingly enough, it caused other even left libertarians like the Situationists to make fun of Bookshin, and call them the Smokey the Bear anarchist, things like this. Social ecology differs from liberalism and even Marxism, even more radical ideologies, which often start from the premise that humans must dominate nature. And once we do that, I mean, either that's a given in liberalism, which then leads to a competition with each other and Marxism builds on that or many forms of socialism. Yes, we have to master nature, and that's why we need this massive technological industrial apparatus to conquer nature and have plenty, and then which that's the, the material precondition for socialism or communism. And social ecology stops and questions that to begin with and says, no, uh, we don't need to dominate nature. That's actually projecting human social relations onto the natural world. What does it even mean to, to dominate nature? So social ecology looks at this problem of wanting to dominate nature and seeing it as something that can be exploited and asks, where did this mentality come from? Why do people think that they can dominate the natural world? And in particular, why do people with power think that they can dominate the natural world? This isn't just something we're all born with. There are many ways to relate to the natural world, but why is it that corporations, banks, governments, militaries, think that the natural world is just expendable and behave in a way that the natural world is expendable. 
social ecology recognizes that these attitudes towards nature are actually extensions of how people think about each other. The idea that some beings are less valuable, that some perspectives are expendable, that attitude in regards to nature originates in how people think about each other. This is a really important point to underline. When people dominate each other, when there's hierarchies of people above one another where they can command and control each other, through the developmental trajectory of the way human beings treat the environment, that idea of interpersonal relations was then applied to nature. What it means is that there's a connection between the environmental disaster that we see looming around us and hierarchy, that horizontal relationships between people are reflective not only of like a political desire that we want, but of the way that we need to relate to nature to end the crisis. It's, it's, it's a simple but profound idea. Many people paraphrase that by saying the environmental crisis is a social crisis. We look at these things through three different temporal frameworks. First, we look, explore the past, and here we use social ecology's understanding of nature as natural history, as the process of natural evolution, which takes us back about three and a half billion years to the earliest forms of organic development. And we examine the present, and we look critically at current aspects of people's relationship to the natural world. And we also look to the future, and here we use a utopian perspective that tries to tease out real existing potentialities that might allow us to reharmonize our relationship with the rest of nature. Ultimately, that's social ecology's goal, the reharmonization of people and the rest of the planet. And maybe last but not least, social ecology is a bunch of different practical attempts to put some of those ideas into practice in many, many, many different ways, whether it's small scale local attempts at popular assemblies, at municipal versions of cooperative economics. There's a lot of different ways that different social ecologists in different parts of the world have attempted to apply their ideas in the real world and in practical terms. Social ecology is also a praxis. We're very concerned with taking the ideas and putting them into practice and then revising them as need be in terms of the experience. So it's really a dynamic system of inquiry rather than a fixed ideology, though it does have a particular perspective. But it attempts to establish a logical framework in which our understanding of nature informs our ethics and our ethics inform our politics. When I talk about politics, social ecology envisions a politics rooted in direct democracy, solidarity, an economy based on mutual aid, and economics based in the notion of from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And those politics take different forms. They take the form of oppositional movements, protest movements, attempts to prevent the current destruction and to rehabilitate that which has been destroyed to restore ecosystems. And there is also an alternative dimension, a reconstructive dimension, the idea of creating new kinds of institutions and relationships that embody our ethics and can be used to replace those institutions that inform society today. 
by exercising practices of direct democracy in our communities, by developing cooperative forms of social and economic relationships. We can directly challenge not only the specific forms of oppression that we experience in our daily lives, but really get to the bottom of overturning those deep-seated patterns of hierarchy that have damaged social relationships through much of human history and that have fundamentally shaped the mindset of domination with which current society has come to exploit really all of nature. Human beings would be self-governing in directly democratic assemblies that are organized on the municipal level and then confederated with each other through the mutual principles that they all uphold. Principles of mutual aid, sharing power, reciprocity, and cooperation. This gives us an institutional framework for self-determination that is neither statist nor anarchist that answers both of these common criticisms. Because we all have equal agency and when we embark on projects together, we should have a say over what those projects are like in equal measure to how those projects affect us. Where we make decisions about what we produce, how we produce it, and how we distribute it in the political realm, not according to markets. We think that you know we can produce enough easily and automate a lot of it, where people have to work radically much less, where work is fully redefined to be things that we like and enjoy doing. And that's, in a nutshell, social ecology. I wish I could explain it in 25 words or less or put it out in a bumper sticker or a soundbite, but it's a fairly complex philosophy. It's social ecology mania down at Bumper Sticker Paradise. Hi, we're the Bumper Sticker Brothers. Some people call us the BS Bros, but what's certain is that we are the best bros at making bumper stickers. When we were challenged to fit the entire ideology of social ecology onto a bumper sticker, we said, We are the ones who can do it. That's the promise, the solemn promise that we make to all of our customers. We say, if you come to the Bumper Sticker Bros, we are going to sum you up. All we said was we needed about five months and about $50 million. And thankfully, the local municipal assembly has lived liberated those funds from the parasitic state. When the directly democratic counterpower assemblies challenged the predatory state to free up research funds for the development of social ecological bumper stickers, I thought, popular power is not there yet. It's not going to happen. But then it happened before our eyes. We're so grateful to them, and we are going to figure this out in our laboratory. It's going to be easy, and we're going to do it in five months. Five months later. It is social ecology depression at Bumper Sticker Paradise, which has become a bumper sticker hell over the last five months. Now, now, don't be so down. I don't think it's so bad. We are bumper frauds. We are not bumper brothers. Look, failure is a part of life. Did we fail to put all of social ecology onto one bumper sticker? Yes. Yes full stop. But failure is just the first step towards success. And I think what we did achieve is worth celebrating, honestly. So I wouldn't say we're in hell. You're right. It's not so bad. We fit it on 10 bumper stickers. So if you have just one bumper sticker on your car, maybe you can get sort of a facet of it, you know, the trunk of the elephant, the foot of the elephant, the tail of the elephant, but you need the whole 10 to just really plaster the back of that car. And we find that that's enough to sum it up. So my favorite bumper sticker, I was working on this one off on my own for quite a while. 
don't dominate exclamation mark germinate exclamation mark brackets a utopia because if you don't specify what's germinating it could mean a lot of things but i think it's pretty good but there are aspects of social ecology that it doesn't get at i thought a really clean one if you already sort of understand social ecology was just the word ought with a period and a little sunflower next to it mm, but it's yes. more like an inside thing it's not really explaining but it's a perfect part of a complementary 10 because you're putting it next on one side you know it says community controlled ecological technology a little ecology wrench thing going on there and then on the other side you have ecological horizontal joyful little social ecology logo so you're starting to see a pastiche the way these ideas play across each other other bumper stickers we came up with that'll go in this pack the classic book chin quotes stuff like the ecological crisis is a social crisis or every revolutionary project is an educational project these are kind of long for bumper stickers, but you can fit them on, trust the experts. One thing that we couldn't just fit in one bumper sticker, but we think is worth it to put across two bumper stickers next to each other. The assumption that what currently exists must necessarily exist is the acid that corrodes all visionary thinking. That's a Murray Bookchin quote. I mean, it's obviously not a bumper sticker based on some of the word choices. He wasn't thinking of bumper stickers when he wrote that. Yeah, and it's pretty common across all of Bookchin's writing, I've noticed, that very little to none of it seemed to have bumper stickers in mind. I mean, nobody's perfect, so. You gotta kill your heroes. This one, I think, sort of comes close. Anarchism plus communism plus enlightenment minus all valid critiques equals social ecology. Yeah, if you remove all valid critiques of those things. The disorganized nature of anarchism, the authoritarian nature of some strains of communism, the various problematic histories address those critiques. And especially once you put that beside all the other bumper stickers, maybe even just some big ones with words like ecology, direct democracy, horizontalism, ecological yeah. technology, social justice. 10 is the smallest amount that we can reliably yes. sum up social, but yeah. we recommend 20, 30, 40, then you're cruising, then you know that it's really covered. Oh, and just one last thing. I want to address these conspiracy theories. There's people who are saying that we could do it in one and we're just choosing to do it in 10 because we want to sell more bumper stickers. No, that's not how the industry works. Trust me, you should see our logs. We move bumper stickers like you don't believe. We don't need this. It's okay? ridiculous. It's insulting. It's a point of pride. Any bumper sticker creator will tell you that they want to get it down to one sticker. If you're selling a 10 pack, you're getting a worse per stick rate. Do your research, okay? Gee, sorry, I'm just, this really bugs me, okay? I'm sorry. Okay, so back to the show. Promise I wouldn't do this. So there's all these interlocking strands, different little areas of social ecological analysis, and it could just seem like a lot. And Dan saying it doesn't fit in 25 words made the little bumper sticker brother in my heart go, we can fit it in 25 words. We have yeah. the technology. Especially if you're not worried about really big words, a word can summarize a paragraph That's or an true. essay worth of yeah. argument, you know? I've got it. 25 words. This is my take on it. Okay, let me cleanse my mind with a moment of silence and go. Political horizontalism, revolutionary education, and direct democracy are the only cures to hierarchism, economism, and the socio-ecological crisis. Build utopia through experimentalism, philosophy, and solidarity. Wow, yeah, that's great. That's only 25 words? 25 words on the, on dot. the dot. Yeah, and they're all big words, seemed longer than 25 words to me. So that means you did a really good job, in my opinion. You know what they say, 25 words is worth a thousand words. And it really covers everything I can think of right now. If you know what I'm talking about, you're like, yeah, that sums it up. But if you don't know what I'm talking like, what is hierarchism? Or what's economism? 
So hierarchism is the naturalization of hierarchy in social relations, and economism is the naturalization of capitalism and economics within social relations. And the socio-ecological crisis, I mean, people write literally dozens and dozens of books on the social crisis, the ecological crises, how they interact, all the different facets of it. It is a dense academic it's not a bumper stick. You're not just going to get hit with it passively. Like, oh, honk if I'm horny. Yeah, I know what that means. <laughs> right to the brainstem, man. But when you're like political horizontalism, revolutionary education and democracy are, and it's like you're just getting started. Well, I, I took a crack at it too. And not to show you up or anything, but mine ended up being only 23 words. And oh it has God. a fewer big words than yours does. That means that you're the boss of me and you get to control my means of sustenance. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Maybe it doesn't convey the ideas is good. Grace and victory. That's what I like about you. Always grace and victory. So this is mine. Ecological harmony requires radically egalitarian social arrangements and applying observable principles of natural harmony and thriving to human societies generates utopian political possibilities. No, that's pretty good. You used because the word and. When I didn't need to, I could have yeah, put a period. That's what I did. I was throwing periods in there. It's one sentence. There's two words left over, so people can fill in whatever they want for those last two. It's open, it's radical, it's democratic. If you want to throw in a Google book chin at the end, that's available to you. If you want to throw in a rock on, I don't know. That's not very social ecological. Let's talk about that for a second. Rocking on, I think, actually is social ecological, and let me explain why. One of the things that social ecology, when we're talking about the good, we're talking about what it means to be human in the world, the natural thriving of rocking on, listening to music and dancing, doing art, expressing individuality and having desirous, joyful experiences, tasting delicious food. That's ah. the good in life. That's the purpose of any sort of radical political movement. And this is why I have the two blank words at the end, because I would never have thought rock on actually does fit and make sense until you explained to me why it does. It reflects something that not even my academic jargon going in the garbage because it's so bad one and it's too long. No, no, no. It's great. It's, it didn't even touch good. on the nature of desire. It didn't touch of the interdependent spiral of desire and need, the interconnectedness of these things at all. Yours, frankly, does by that absence. It allows for it anyway. And in that sense, actually, perhaps the best 25 word summary of social ecology would be any 25 words at all there's just 25 blank yeah, word 25 spaces <laughs> that's the real spirit <laughs> brilliant we did it and i'm actually really curious to see what people would fill in those 25 words with so maybe if everybody tweets them at us with a hashtag social ecology in 25 words we could read them all so calling all bumper sticker siblings out there don't you want to participate in the challenge of summarizing a complex philosophy into a small amount of words? Hashtag social ecology in 25 words. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boss Spot podcast for bosses by bosses, innovating new ideological fields of antisocial anti-ecology. My name is Nosh. And my name is Ronar. Today, we're taking a close look at a common argument that us antisocial anti-ecologists get a lot. If hierarchism is so great, why does my boss suck so bad? A lot of people mention that to us in particular, that 
they find it humiliating and degrading to be part of a hierarchical workplace and that they think that maybe that means that it could maybe be abolished or something. Yeah. And it makes sense. People hyper focus on this. You know, they spend a lot of time at work. And while they're there, they're controlled the whole time. And it's kind of annoying. But the thing that they really need to get through their head is that it's part of nature that bosses must exist. Even with the humble lobster, as Jordan Peterson, hierarchical friend of the show, points out, you know, the serotonergic systems of the lobster are very similar to the systems that you find in humans. So therefore, he says, look, hierarchy is in nature. It actually predates trees. When two lobsters get in a fight, the lobster who wins is proud. They're standing tall. The lobster that loses is hunched over, kind of like a loser. And that's why today, when you go to your job, you have to do what your boss says. It's just the way of the world. You can find it in the humble lobster, but you can find it even in a place like sports. It's part of human nature to have sports victors and sports losers and have a competition where teams are excluded one by one until you have one victorious leader who stands above the rest. Some people want to pretend that some people aren't better at sports than other people. Clearly, some people score the most baskets in a basketball game. Someone has to. Mm, yeah, yeah. And they have command and control over others with recourse to punishment. The fastest runner at the end of a race, just society, yeah, if yeah. you're doing things right, gets to tell all the other racers what to do. Clean my house, tie my shoes. And if you don't, I'm going to withhold the necessities of life from you, just like a boss. That's nature. Look at beauty competitions. Miss USA, Miss Universe. From time immemorial, the beginning of time, we've been doing this. The monkeys do it. The lobsters do it. The lions do it. Heck, even turtles do it. Well, the lions are like the beauty pageant winner of the jungle. Absolutely, yeah. And the top gorilla in the gorilla pack is like the landlord of the gorilla pack. I mean, we find evictions in nature, pandemic evictions in nature. I mean, your body has something called white blood cells. The white blood cell is like the police officer of the bloodstream looking for ne'er-do-well viruses, bacteria. Do you want your white blood cells to have no hierarchy in terms of what they kill and what they keep? Do you want them to treat your own cells and foreign invading bacteria equally? I don't think so. Well, and a lot of people say hierarchism, all this idea of hierarchy is just social notions of domination that you're projecting onto nature to justify the way that you want to treat your employees. And, and I find that so Ugh, insulting yeah. and frankly idiotic. It's like they didn't even speak to me first. Do you think we like going into work every single day, having to tell people what to do, having to do less work, is supervise their work, having to take all the money for ourselves and deal with all the resentment of that? No, we wish that people could be bosses like us, that everybody had that entrepreneurial spirit. I wish we could live in a beautiful, perfect utopia, but I'm just steely-eyed about the reality of the situation, and that's what makes me a strong, powerful, commanding boss. Sorry, not sorry. It's just an extension of the lobster thing Jordan Peterson was Brilliant, mentioning. Man. Just the notion that we're projecting ideological systems that could justify our quote-unquote unjust hoarding of wealth, etc., taking food and out of the mouths of babies or whatever they say about us. Who's paying attention? But I mean, this idea that we would justify our own social position to actively fight against democracy, horizontalism, well-being in an ecological future that can actually take care of everyone. I just find that idea so confusing that I don't even know where to start in responding to it. You know, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling like for my own self-care, I'll just send them a quick YouTube clip, the man himself, Jordan Peterson, explaining about lobsters. 
So these creatures engage in dominance disputes. And I think dominance is the right way to think about it because lobsters aren't very empathic and they're not very social. And so it really is the toughest lobster that wins. When a lobster wins, he flexes and gets bigger. So he looks bigger because he's a winner. It's like he's advertising that. And the neurochemical system that makes him flex is serotonergic. It's the same chemical that's affected by antidepressants in human beings. And so like, if you're depressed, you're a defeated lobster. Like you're, you're like this, I'm small, things are dangerous. I don't wanna fight. Well, if you give lobsters who just got defeated in a fight serotonin, then they stretch out and they'll fight again. Like we separated from those creatures on the evolutionary timescale somewhere between 350 and 600 million years ago. And the damn neurochemistry is the same. And so that's another indication of just how important hierarchies of authority are. There weren't trees around when lobsters first manifested themselves on the planet. And so what that means is these hierarchies that I've been talking about, those things are older than trees. See, now, if that doesn't make you shut up and stop complaining about your boss because it's the way of things. You're not open to an objective study of lobsters. Lobster scientists around the world agree that the fact that we both have serotonergic systems means that humans have to organize themselves hierarchically under bosses. Jordan Peterson is just relaying the science. If you don't like it, tough. Look, if you don't want to objectively study the physiobiology and social structures of lobsters and then apply that as a generalized theory of society, I just don't understand how you think you're rational or ethical. They must be lying to themselves. And I'd be lying to myself if I was to say that I wasn't sorry that this segment has to end, but... All segments do, so. Yeah, the temptation is definitely here to go with the thoughtless masses and tell myself a beautiful lie that this can never end instead of telling myself the hard, cold reality that we only have so much time each week. But we thank you all aspiring bosses and bosses alike for tuning into our humble little podcast. Praise be to Jordan Peterson. I hope you get better soon. Perhaps try eating more meat. Maybe you're not getting enough. Or more salt. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. So back in the realm of social ecologists rather than anti-social anti-ecologists, we asked Peter Staudenmeyer, who we heard from earlier, what he thought of Jordan Peterson's lobster argument. I would say, keeping in mind that I'm hearing that quote outside of its context, but given that, I would say that's a seemingly new version of a very, very, very old argument. There have been arguments in favor of authoritarian forms of society, arguments in favor of hierarchical forms of society for thousands of years, and those arguments have very frequently invoked some sort of natural basis. In fact, I would say those arguments typically claim that they are founded in the natural order somehow or other. The only thing that sounds to me a little bit sort of slightly newfangled about that version of the argument is the attempt to enlist neurochemistry, of all things, in favor of authoritarianism and hierarchy. I have to say I don't find it particularly persuasive. He's talking about lobsters, for goodness sake. Lobsters are crustaceans. And he wants to, if I understood correctly, he wants to compare the neurochemistry of this group of crustaceans with the neurochemistry of a group of primates, namely Homo sapiens. From an evolutionary point of view, from just a basic biological point of view, there's not a whole lot of sense in that. Even just the basic kinds of central nervous systems at stake are so radically different. In fact, there's a debate to be had whether crustaceans even have a central nervous system to begin with. Do we describe that series of ganglia as 
a kind of central nervous system. Even if we somehow had full agreement on that score, the ways that each of those creatures respond to the environments around them are worlds apart for evolutionary reasons, for ecological reasons, for morphological reasons, for constitutional reasons, for a whole set of reasons. And it is a form of reductionism and radical oversimplification to pretend that we can just make easy, short, quick analogies between the two. That just doesn't make evolutionary sense. We could put this down to a straightforward political disagreement. Jordan Peterson likes authoritarian and hierarchical systems. I am opposed to them. But we could also develop it more into a, a kind of a, a divide over what the history of natural evolution tells us. And for that matter, a divide over how can we best make sense of evolutionary biology. As far as the political disagreements go, it's going to take a lot more than crustaceans to convince someone like me that hierarchical forms of society are not only quote unquote natural. I don't think anyone denies that. Of course, they're natural. No one claims that they appeared from outer space or that they're merely to be found in works of fiction. I think that second set of questions, how can we best make sense of evolutionary biology, is a fascinating topic, and it's a debate that's lively and ongoing right now. I don't think that someone like Jordan Peterson, unfortunately, has much of substance to say to that second set of questions, but that shouldn't stop the rest of us from exploring those questions. Social ecology has all sorts of claims to make about natural evolution, evolutionary biology, some of those claims I also don't find persuasive, which is to say I am a social ecologist who rejects some claims about evolution that other social ecologists have put forward. I think that's normal in a diverse and lively and healthy and self-critical social movement. This question of whether there are hierarchies in nature and what that means for human societies is a really central part of social ecology. Even though Peter really disagrees with Jordan Peterson on that, he also, as he was alluding to there, kind of disagrees with some of our other guests about that. One of the things in social ecology as a field of thought is that there's no resolved answers to every question that arises. It's one of the things that I kind of like about talking in the social ecological field is I feel like there's a lot of flexibility to interpret and think about these core issues. Haya Heller, who's another educator at the ISC, someone who knew Bookchin very well, spoke to this. At the ISC, I can say that there's always a really healthy debate around who is a social ecologist and what is a social ecologist. And I feel like if there's a tendency to lean one way or the other, we tend to lean towards being more inclusive than being more exclusive. Bookchin didn't really believe in having a party line. He believed it was authoritarian and, and not democratic to have very rigid principles or set of ideas that everybody had to adhere to. And so in social ecological circles, there is definitely space for very healthy disagreement. We've had many public forums where we have conversations with students around to have different people's positions put out there. I think there's a lot of room for a diversity of positions about how we get there. But I think we all share that same common goal, the goal of creating a communalist society that is ecological, has a moral economy, is directly democratic, is socially just, and creates a political space in which people can fulfill their potential as human beings to live in a mutualistic way with each other and with the rest of the natural world. And so with that in mind, 
Here are what some of our guests said when we asked them, are there hierarchies in nature? Within the philosophy of social ecology, hierarchy in nature is a social construct and it's a problematic one. According to a lot of sociobiologists informed by a Spencerian reading of nature, you can find hierarchies everywhere. You can look at the great apes and voila, there's a hierarchy, there's a male dominating the rest of the ape group. To talk of the lion as king of the jungle, or to assume that the ant plays a lower position in some imagined hierarchy is really a projection of social relationships that exist in our culture, in our society, in our political system. And so for Bookshin, there are no hierarchies in nature. The one thing I might quibble with is, yes, of course, there are hierarchical systems in the non-human natural world. But the question would be, so what? There's an incredible array of systems to be found in the non-human natural world that doesn't tell us much of anything at all about the way that humans right now, right here, should construct our own societies together. First of all, a hierarchy in a technical sense is an institutionalized relationship of command and control that ultimately has recourse to physical violence to enforce its edicts. And such relationships simply don't exist in nature. You know, the so-called alpha male, it's a fiction because when ethologists observe guerrilla troops, yes, the silverback male maintain control over the females for breeding purposes. But while he's over here beating his chest and showing off for the females, a younger male is slipped off into the woods with a female and they're procreating. So, you know, it's not even an effective hierarchy. And once again, owning to a technical definition, it's not a hierarchy at all. Hierarchy is, is a form of domination based on a relationship of command and control with one subjectivity dominating the other. In nature, there's no power relationships that are institutionalized, and that's a really key word in social ecology, is the concept of having power relationships or any kind of social relationships institutionalized or given a, a form. Animals don't create institutions that outlive them or even that are transmitted from one group of animals to another. The silverback ape doesn't institutionalize his power. He enjoys what's called episodal dominance or situational dominance based on a kind of physical strength or capability in the moment. If he gets injured or falls ill and loses that physical ability, he loses his position. And so that's not institutionalized power, that's situational dominance. The lion is not in any kind of institutionalized hierarchy. The lion is in fact dependent on the herbivores that provide its nutrition, just as the herbivores are dependent on the grasses on which they feed, and the grasses are dependent on the soil in which it feeds, and the soil is dependent on the microbes. And it's all interconnected. It's a mutualistic relationship, a relationship of interdependency. I'm not sure it would make sense from a social ecology point of view to flatly deny any relevance for the human social realm when you do look at forms of supposed forms, putative forms of hierarchy in the non-human natural world. The argument isn't so much that there's no relevance there. The argument is simply that the relevance is extraordinarily attenuated. It's a very small degree, a very minor degree of relevance, and that's simply because of the kinds of creatures that human beings are. You know, once again, I don't want to be too prescriptive. I don't want to be dogmatic. Social ecology is not a fixed 
ideology. It's an evolving, developing perspective and discipline. Once again, I think so much of it is in the eye of the beholder. You know, in the early days, ecologists like Odom used to talk about food chains and with carnivores on top. But as we've gained a more sophisticated understanding through ethology, through ecology, through various scientific disciplines, we've come to understand that, in fact, what exists is not a food chain, but a food web. And that web as a web implies is based on interdependence and mutualism. And those are the kinds of relationships that really sustain us in nature. So in the philosophy of social ecology, when we're talking about hierarchy, we're talking about something very specific, which is a command and control social hierarchy. This aspect of social ecology, what I would consider a pretty like narrow definition of hierarchy is command and control with threat of punishment is one of the things that I have the most difficulty with. Because when I think about social hierarchies and social hierarchies being a problem, a lot of the things I think about don't seem to necessarily fit into a command and control framework. Like if we say, for example, that white people in our society, on average, are more likely to have wealth, more likely to go to better schools, more likely to be interviewed for jobs, less likely to receive extremely harsh sentences for similar crimes. Like there's all these things that present a type of hierarchy between how white people are treated in society and how black people are treated in society. And we can say that the society right now ranks white people above black people in some institutional ways that aren't necessarily related to white people having the power to command and control black people in all instances. Like there's command and control elements threaded through all of this, you know, who's making the decision to hire bosses who have command and control power, who's doing sentencing judges who have command and control power over people in this society. The command and control, I think, is like threaded through this, but not every expression of a problematic hierarchy is that at the core. The way that I think about it, there's a historical and etymological basis to say hierarchies refer specifically to command and control rulership. The root word of hierarchy is about rulership, which means that through the developmental trajectory of humankind and human ideology, in our language, anything that we apply the word hierarchy to now is something that came in the wake of the assumption of rulership. We live in a society where the most prominent strands of thought are founded on hierarchical basis with hierarchical assumptions. If you look at like the Wikipedia page of the types of hierarchies and the things that are all considered hierarchies at once, the connection to rulership gets pretty tenuous. Yeah, you think of like people use hierarchy in ways that don't even have anything to do with what I was talking about, social domination. They're talking about purely the fact that you can graph things out in tiers sometimes. Yeah, like this is part of the way that people naturalize social hierarchies is be like, well, look, I made this tree graph. We found it in nature. It's the shape of things. It's yeah. like that's literally how people like Jordan Peterson can take that conflation and then use it to his rhetorical advantage in trying to sell a regressive social order. Yeah, because they make choices. If you have a hierarchy of values, if you think you'd rather turn left than right at the upcoming corner, and that's a hierarchy, it's the same thing as having a boss. It's, it's, it's actually his argument, uh, something close to that. And I think the insight that social ecology can sort of give us on this is that through the developmental trajectory of all these different sciences, all these different conceptions of the world, the way that we conceive of specialization, we conceptualize it all within the framework of a ruling hierarchy, this historical 
construct that was based on command and control and was based on a sense of supremacy. And then we apply it to all these instances where there's nothing that's being command and controlled and there's no supremacy. It is hard to like talk about this without embedded, like we don't have good words for tree graphs with tiers that don't mix up language with hierarchical language. And I think that is definitely revealing, maybe not necessarily of everyone who is using these ways to frame, but just of like cultural assumptions floating down into language and having impacts on how we conceptualize things. So I'm sympathetic to people who are saying, I want to retain the use of the word hierarchy in a broad sense. Don't tell me what to do. I know what it's like to feel like someone's pushing on from the outside saying that these words mean these things. I I just don't want social ecology to be that thing that all computer programmers are going to be like, oh, you mean those weird political people who keep telling us we can't use the word hierarchy in our programming like discussions or whatever? Like, So yeah, I mean, the definitions of words is based on how people use them. So if people are using words in ways that are different from the etymology, the etymology doesn't automatically win just because I prefer it. This is just merely what I think. I invite you to think alongside me and make your own conclusions. I don't want to be a tyrant here. No, Sean's forcing us to use hierarchy only in a specific way. No, uh, Sean, Sean, he's commanding and controlling our language. Uh, uh, he's uh, commanding and controlling me to think alongside him and come to my own conclusions. Uh. <laughs> Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Pyramid Goggles. Pyramid Goggles. It's the way to see the world as it is. Stretching back to ancient Egypt, the pyramid is the most beautiful and meaningful structure in human society. There's a top, there's a bottom, and what's on top is better. These full-featured goggles will filter whatever may be there. The entire world is going to look like these beautiful social hierarchies. It's going to make it a lot easier to navigate underneath our system. The world can sometimes seem like a chaotic place. It can seem like there's all different kinds of ways that we can frame things or types of relationships we can pull from nature. But that's just a distraction, and the pyramid goggles filter out those distractions and let us see domination is a law of physics. I'm a new parent. I decided when my son was born, I don't want him being weighed down with all these irrelevant, contrary theories to the way that things are. I was going to pay for the whole package, get these goggles soldered permanently onto his face so he can have a leg up in this world. I feel like I made the right choice. A lot of people said, don't put a metal plate in your newborn son's head. And to that I say, if not for the metal plate, how would we solder the goggles? Obviously, they didn't have an answer. As the founder of this company, so excited to watch your precious little baby have giant screws drilled into his head plate to have the goggles welded on, but it's not enough because so many people aren't making the same choice. And that's why we have made a deal with all the world's governments to make these goggles mandatory. Things are going to work like clockwork when everybody just sees the world for what it is and plays the same game. So we're all on the same page. We even have the endorsement of the Emperor of the World. Oh, hello everyone, it's me, the Central Big Emperor. The reason why it's important to command and control that the pyramid goggles are mandatory under the threat of punishment is if the little boys and girls don't have the pyramid goggles on, they won't be able to see my beautiful clothes. Oh, you wouldn't want that. Not only are his clothes incredibly stylish, 
to let your children be exposed to a nude old man like this, an emperor. I mean, that was the decision that I had to make in the end. As I said, this is a lot. This costs a lot to install this. This is back before it was mandatory. And I said, I don't want my kids to not be able to see those beautiful clothes because it's such a lovely outfit. And that's where I made my choice. I mean, there's a reason he's the emperor. He's the most beautiful. He's the most beautiful. His clothes are the most beautiful. And if my kids weren't able to see that, how are they going to get ahead in this world? They're not. And that's why Pyramid Goggles sponsored this show. Pyramid Goggles, they're mandatory. Social ecology has a lot to say about whether or not human hierarchies have a basis in the natural world. But it also encourages us to think about the way in which we consider humanity's place within nature. People have an idea in their head, it's a concept, that they can dominate nature. They're hierarchically above nature. They can command and control nature. Nature is this untamed thing that human beings have the ultimate right to do whatever they want with, to force nature to correspond to humanity's will. It's a bad way to think about nature, but it's been like the dominant one for a really long time. And we're going to hear first from Brian Tokar, who knows a lot about the environment and probably noticing a theme, works with the ISC. Much of Western philosophy takes the notion of humans dominating nature as a given. That was an idea that Marx built on. He believed that it was part of humanity's destiny to dominate and master and rationalize nature. And Bookchin departed from that idea radically. Murray Bookchin, over the course of many years of historical and anthropological research, really turned that on its head, positing that the domination of nature is fundamentally a myth that we're part of nature, we can't dominate it as if we exist outside of it. When you're inside your house, for example, you don't think of yourself as being out in nature. And we even use these expressions all the time. We are going out into the natural world. But how do we reconcile this with the fact that literally everything around us is coming from that natural world? Well, in social ecology, we see culture and the society that humans produce as a kind of second nature. Because Bookchin makes a distinction between what he calls first nature, which is nature unaffected by humanity, has emerged over three and a half billion years. Once humanity emerges, we see a second nature, which is very much a part of first nature. But we have to make a distinction because we also see that humanity, that people have the ability to influence nature, to affect nature in either a positive or a negative way by their actions, which is really qualitatively different from any other species. Second nature is filtered through the creativity and creative powers of human beings. Our society is actually a reworked natural world recast through the human experience. Human society really sits within natural evolution. We are as much a part of nature, humanity, as any other species, as a blade of grass, as a lion or an ant. This idea is another one of those things that is kind of like really simple and obvious that it almost escapes you how interesting it is. The way that we treat going inside as if you are now outside of nature or that when you're leaving your house, you're going out into nature, whereas before you weren't. But if you think about it for like five seconds, it's obviously a nested set. 
Cities are contained within wilderness. Buildings and rooms are contained within plots of land where trees could be. It seems common sense in a way, but we don't act as if it's common sense. We basically fundamentally act within the realm of politics and business as if that's not true explicitly. But even in the social realm, we have this sort of like unconscious day-to-day -day ideology of the separation between wild nature and society, cities or buildings or whatever. The experience of being out in nature is so completely different from the experience of being in your house or being in a city. Spending time with the trees and spending time walking down a street filled with cars at rush hour where the air is thick with gasoline vapors. It's like, People I understand why you, you and... <laughs> yeah, you think these are two separate things. Yeah, not the non-judgmental trees. You have the judgmental eyes of all the... It's true. I mean, the reality is most people in public are not really paying attention to you it's okay there's no reason to be anxious but i definitely never feel anxious when i'm just chilling with trees like i don't think trees notice that my back is hanging out of my shirt and i need to get a belt or something that's the human realm yeah so i understand why people are like that's nature and this isn't and either this is better or that's better for whatever reasons. I understand why, but it's silly to say that either first nature or second nature is better than the other. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that it's silly to say that they're completely separate and not one contained within the other. Yeah. Understandable, but silly. And so in social ecology, it's important to see this idea, this fantasy that humans could dominate nature is analogous to the idea that one can dominate your own arm. You can, you know, chop your arm off, you can self-harm, but you can't dominate a part of yourself. Because if humanity is part of the rest of the natural world, you can't dominate it. You can destroy it and you can harm it the way you could chop your arm off, but you, you can't dominate it and you can't, there's no hierarchy there. And this attitude has created a social problem where human beings are treating the natural world as if it's something we can control, manipulate, dominate, and exploit. This is obviously a problem today. I think many of us have reached the point where we've understood that humanity's relationship with the natural world is really out of balance. And in social ecology, we see that relationship go awry because of this mentality of hierarchy and domination. And that if we look at hierarchical social relationships throughout human history, there's a direct correlation between domination within society and the mindset of dominating the natural world. And that the societies that began to express patterns of domination socially were the ones that really furthered the notion that the natural world as a whole is an object of domination. Such a profound thought. This attitude that some people are better than others transfers to nature with how we conceive of our relationship to nature. We think we can just command the biosphere to accept as much greenhouse gases as we feel like putting out, that we can command it to accept as much microplastics in the ocean as is convenient for us. And there's a real historical basis you can track through here from the old idea of rulership, the idea of kings and social castes taking different forms and flowing through history, reaching a point where the dominant cultural institution, the capitalist institution of society is defined by these values which were founded 
literally by slaveholders based on the assumption that kings are better than peasants. Hierarchical ideas of how human beings should treat each other are the dominant metaphors of the society that is evaluating and trying to deal with climate change. And part of this history, part of the history, the developmental history that led us to this crisis moment that we're in has been the systemic political exclusion of metaphors and ways of seeing the world that actually do have a chance of addressing this crisis, that we've been shut out of the conversation based on ideas of hierarchy, of racial caste, gender caste, economic caste. For example, indigenous people around the world have been very clear and consistent about the support of the stewardship of nature all over North America, every place I've ever heard of. I think there's studies to this effect. We got to listen to them. We got to work with them. It's important that we don't try to reinvent the wheel every time. There's really good solutions out there and people haven't been listened to for unjust reasons. The conception of how the world works that capitalist economics provides us with is that human beings produce value and trade in this marketplace and that natural resources kind of exist laying around for humans to make profits or to make products. Natural resources are to be used in capitalism. That's what they're there for, to be used, not to be interacted with in a way where the needs of the ecosystem, the eco-community are one in the same with the needs of humanity, that it's a community that we're involved in together, not something that we're there to extract from for our own benefit as much as possible. Capitalism in many ways is the ultimate cause of the climate crisis. Capitalism co-evolved with the increasing dependence on fossil fuels. We wouldn't be where we are today with the massive excess in emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases if it weren't for the fact that the pace of economic expansion that fossil fuels made possible beginning in the mid-19th century and, of course, accelerating in the 20th century, help perpetuate the myth that we can have an economic system that continues to grow and expand without any limits. We have the technology. The obstacle is that these energy systems and innovations might just not be as profitable as fossil fuels have been over the last hundred years. The perpetuation of capitalist growth has meant a huge advertising industry that's constantly selling people on things that we don't need and would otherwise probably not even want. We have a tremendous amount of waste in the system where it's better for capitalism to keep producing and throwing things away, like, for example, 30 to 40 percent of the food that's produced in the so-called developed world is currently wasted. Scientists have mapped out about a dozen different geological and biological parameters where excess consumption is destroying the biosphere in ways that go beyond emissions of greenhouse gases, whether it's alterations in biogeochemical cycles, the cycling of nutrients throughout ecosystems, destruction of forests and other living ecosystems, the balance of life in the oceans. All of these are, are products of capitalist excess, and we need to think holistically about how to get beyond the mindset that says we can just continue to exploit, and it's, it's more than just a climate problem. There's so many places within the structure of the capitalist system where the logic of master and slave, dominator and dominated play out. And you can sort of 
trace a really deep connection between social relations, capitalism, and the environmental crisis by noticing the places where these command and control hierarchies and the hierarchies of supremacy are instrumental component parts of the climate crisis that we face in the current day. The idea that when a person becomes a landlord and owns a piece of land, it's not just that this person has this abstract relationship to this land and it is theirs, it's a relationship between them and the land, but also the assumption is that if you go onto someone's land, they're the boss of you there. Yeah, they can order you off, they can have you kidnapped for breaking your property rights, even if the reason that you're on their land is to feed a baby or to save the environment, it doesn't matter. My house, my rules, my land, my rules. These hierarchical notions of how human beings are ranked and how they command and control each other are built into the foundational idea of private property rights. So that's one component part of capitalism. Another component part of capitalism where you might find a boss is the workplace, where every workplace is treated as a private fascist dictatorship for the purposes of profit making at the directions of the owners. My factory, my rules. Yeah, and those rules, we know how they often end up for the environment. Yeah, it seems like command and control relationships, ideologies of supremacy that some people are better than others and get to tell them what to do is really baked in deep into so many institutions in our society right now. It's also how police work. We haven't mentioned that. They're police. They get to tell you what to do basically no matter what. Mm -hmm. Because they're higher than you. They're closer to the top. If you have a legal system where one person is allowed to hit the other and the other is not allowed to hit them back, the legal system has said that one of those people is supreme to the other. Yeah, absolutely. They can't look at each other eye to eye. We now go to a police station in capitalist statism, where a young social ecological communalist who's not an anarchist, although some social ecological communalists are anarchists, and that's okay, has been detained for several hours without charges or access to a bathroom. Now, the cell door finally opens. Oh, what do we got here? It looks like a piece of shit anarchist. Technically not, but hi, yeah. Wasn't that your sign? It said down with all hierarchy? Yeah, that was my sign. I know I got a lot of friends who are anarchists, but in the 1990s, a lot of people sort of felt that anarchism was taking like an individualist neoliberal turn and they wanted to distinguish themselves and they used the term communalism and I, I identify with that. But yes, that is my sign. Oh, so you're saying that's your sign? It's not everybody's sign? I thought it was my sign. I thought it was everyone's sign. If you're asking for a gift of a sign that says down with hierarchy, I'd be really happy to give it to you. It would show that you're showing an interest in some of the things that I'm interested in. But I've got personal property, of course, like things that relate directly to my day-to-day -day experience, like clothing or computer or phone or something, which I think anarchists would agree with. Okay, just yeah, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Okay. Whatever that means, what I'm saying is that you think getting rid of hierarchies is better than having a whole bunch of hierarchies. Like maybe if you were to graph out ideas in terms of which ideas are the best, you might put getting rid of hierarchy at the top of your own internal hierarchy of ideas. You can't escape it. You love hierarchies. If our conception of hierarchy is a certain mode of graphing, it's a narrow concept to sort of define the just structure of You're society. You're the one saying that we have to get rid of everything that can be graphed. 
choreographed that way. That's what I'm saying is dumb. This is the thing you. is it's the difference between quantity, but also qualitative differences. You can say, okay, these graphs look the same, but what really matters is what does this connecting line actually mean? What's the qualities of this connecting line in this graph? Because just because you can graph stuff in a sort of hierarchical nested kind of way doesn't mean that people should be able to command and control others because they're hierarchically better than them. So do I think a horizontal anti-hierarchy approach is a good thing to advocate for? Yes. Do I think it better corresponds to reality and will create better outcomes than the alternative? Yes. Does that mean that people who have these thoughts should be able to command and control okay, and punish up, people who up. don't? No. If we want to talk about what corresponds to reality, I think it's obvious. Some people have the ability to boss other people around. For example, whatever I tell you to do right now, you have to do because I have a gun and all my cop buddies are outside the room right now and they'll come on here if I ask them to and we can shut off that camera and do whatever we want. You understand me? I absolutely do understand so that. So that's 100%. reality. Yeah, and the reality of the situation is that no matter if my arguments are better than you, if I'm smarter than you, stronger than you, I think I might even be if we were one-on-one -on -one in a fair I context. I think I probably could, but it doesn't matter. Mm, probably not. I mean, well, and that's the thing is that we'll never get to know because you have the backing of law, state, institutions, the power to record yep. narratives of this incident. Absolutely. Uh, these are all things that would apply equally whether or not you were the dumbest, weakest, most ineffectual person in the world or not. The institution is what gives you power here. You're just a shriveled husk. Boys, get in here. Of course there's hierarchies found in second nature, social nature, but first nature, there's nothing, ow, oh, there's nothing like this. This is what you get for attacking but, oh, capitalism. Ow, oh, we should actually get a doctor at this it's point. It's our job to preserve the system you're protesting. Oh, and I should say the specialization of a doctor means we should definitely listen to their advice, but it doesn't mean that they rule over us. And so, once all the dust had settled, the incident report detailed how this deranged activist had destroyed the cameras in the holding room and attacked three officers with an intense viciousness that would have been terrifying if not for his extreme physical weakness and laughable skills, according to the officers at the scene. Later that same week, those same officers were given commendations for their brave work protecting the rights of oil barons to destroy indigenous lands. The end. And now we go to two old friends meeting on a train. Sorry, I just got to get this bag up here over oh, your head. Oh. oh, Lewis, is that you? Mortimer, my God, it's been ages. <laughs> I haven't seen you in, what was it, 10, 15 years? Mortimer, Mortimer. Do you mind if I sit here? Please. Are you still writing those political blog posts? Yeah, I'm guilty as charged, yeah. I guess you could say I'm both a student of and a teacher of social ecology in a broad sense, participating in discourse online to help further political thought to create a lasting revolution, I guess. That's sort of what I'm doing still. How about you? Are you still polishing those diamonds? Oh, uh, no. I, I'm polishing much more expensive gemstones now. I, oh, well, that's where the money is, I guess. You certainly have to find a way to make ends meet under this twisted system. Capitalism, right? It's uh, Yeah, I just spend my time listening to podcasts. Well, that can make it bearable, for sure. As I was listening to one... I even thought, you know, I wish I could ask Mortimer about this, but we're not in contact anymore. But, you know, why is it that some people critique capitalism just based on class, whereas others use this, like, hierarchy framing? Like, 
What's the benefit there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think the anti-capitalist critique of hierarchy is intended to be sort of a broad lens that allows us to tackle a plurality of issues of justice, not just issues that relate to ownership of the means of production, ownership of your own labor, and so on, like a sort of class framework does. That doesn't mean that we throw out the class framework at all. Actually, we accept a lot of these things for granted about the way that power relations work in society when it comes to the distribution of not just the means of production, but capital broadly. So I like to think the critique of hierarchy retains everything about class relations that you find useful, but then it expands it by narrowing in down on that one specific thing of a command and control hierarchy under threat of punishment to remove the necessities of life as the sort of extreme social relationship kernel of all of these other types of injustices. So that could include the workplace relations of boss of an employee, but it could also apply to patriarchal relations of a man over a woman or even men in general over women in general in a patriarchal society. If we just kept a class framework and then tried to use the class framework to analyze patriarchy or to analyze the ecological crisis or to analyze racial disparities, disability justice, these sort of things, we're going to find that the class frame is lacking, not because it's not useful, but because it's not specific enough and broad enough at the same time to encompass all these things. This is why I miss you, buddy. It actually broadens the perspective. This hierarchy framework is kind of like a meta framework that includes class, but helps us see the similarities between class and all these other relationships of domination in society. Exactly. Because, I mean, for example, in a white supremacist society, a person who's racialized as white doesn't need to have ownership over the means of production over someone who's racialized as black, brown, indigenous, etc., in order to have a type of dominance over them. You know, if you have institutions which exclude people based on their cultural, ethnic, racial identity, that hierarchical difference isn't a class difference related to the means of production. And I think there's good arguments that, you know, the upper class of capitalism disproportionately benefits of white supremacy. But white supremacy and racism is something that isn't explained well enough by itself through class relations alone. We need to expand that to a critique of hierarchy. And then not only do we have a good frame to critique those disparities in the way that people of color are disenfranchised and abused within a capitalist white supremacist society, but we have a common framework to connect that and other forms of social justice. I don't know why I didn't see it before. There's so many relationships with domination in society. Like, I mean, just look at the state as a whole. I mean, like... Yeah, I mean, we know from the start that the state was, from its inception, a way to keep out the voices of people. It was a vertical organization designed to exclude women, to exclude indigenous people, racialized people. The entire history of the state is caught up in the history of capitalism, sexism, racism. And these things are all sort of intertwined in a way from the very start. So the thought of a benevolent state, I mean, you might be able to get something benevolent that can come out of a state sometimes in a limited sense. But broadly speaking, the social ecological perspective is that democracy and the state are natural enemies, that the vertical hierarchism of the state, it just can't, you can't functionally have a horizontal equal society based on an ethics of complementarity and retain the state at the same time. So social ecological theorists like Modibo Kadali and Abdullah Oshalan, they say the same thing, which is that you need to build power outside of the state. You need to build social power 
among people, create institutions, forms of freedom, direct democracy that can grow alongside and in some cases challenge the state. And this hierarchical critique can be applied to pretty much any place you find injustice in society, whether that's disability justice, LGBT rights, the ecological crisis, alienating bureaucracy that keeps people away from the things they need, the construct of anti-democracy, the idea of taking away power from people. We can even consider information freedom as a question of hierarchy. I mean, who has the right to withhold information from who and why? Is that a type of punishment. What else haven't we mentioned? Anti-Semitism. can tackle it. Like, what's the issue with Nazis, really? It's that they're extreme hierarchists. They take all this stuff really literally. They think that hierarchies are natural, desirable, and the way to make society a better world. They just take it to that extreme where it ends in genocide. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah, thank you. Damn, I wish I was recording with my pocket recorder. I always get on these rants when I'm not recording. Oh, that's train thoughts for you. The sound wouldn't have been very good on here anyway. Oh, yeah, all the, the train noise in the, the background back. from the train. Yeah. yeah probably couldn't hear anything and that was two friends meeting on a train after a long time apart now back to the show i think the best objection to the anti-hierarchical line of analysis is that specialization necessitates hierarchy by having people playing different roles it's necessary that one person play the role of telling everyone else what to do and ensuring that they are compliant with that you can have people who are specialized in relation to each other. We can defer to the bootmaker on the issue of boots based on a socially mediated sense of respect without the necessity of any person's job being the making sure this gets done cop. There's a real truth to what they're saying, which is that like, if there's not always time to have democratic meetings about every decision, you might assign someone the role of making interim decisions that people can go to and they're kind of coordinating things and telling people what to do and that the function of the group will rely on for that period of time that it's been agreed on that this person is playing the point person role that generally, unless they ask you to do something really wild and stupid, you'll do what they say, you know? because it would be useful to a functioning group or circumstance during this period of time to do that. Another piece of that, too, is agreeing on preconditions. So, like, you can have a democratic process where one person's doing their best to apply the assumptions that have been agreed on by a group. You can have that point person without them being the boss, and now forever you're listening to them. It can be project-dependent. The thing that those people who are like, oh, specialization is important and sometimes you need someone to make decisions want to retain, I think, can be retained without everything we care about hierarchy being negative, not being a part of that. No, yeah, absolutely. Their role is to direct and be presumably a mediator if there's any sort of dispute on the direction. So yeah. as long as it doesn't deprive people from the basic means of life, as long as it doesn't dominate or intimidate people into doing the things that they need to do, you're describing something that is completely chill and cool, according to the anarchist anti-hierarchy framework. Yeah, like some anarchists, I think, would call that a just hierarchy, a hierarchy that has proven its own legitimacy through the democratic process and that for this time, we're going to listen to this person. There's the just hierarchy, unjust hierarchy framing, which I can vibe with that. We can say that this situation actually isn't a hierarchy because it doesn't meet all those conditions you just laid out. I'm chill with that version of language. Really, whatever people want, I'll just get on board for the conversation with them. Yeah, and I'm a big time advocate. When I hear just hierarchy, I cringe. It just feels like we're missing an opportunity to talk about 
how our society developed and what the underlying assumptions because I just so deeply feel that I'm surrounded by all these assumptions of supremacy and command and control that go unchallenged but at the same time I need to relax and chill I invite you to think alongside me and make your own conclusions so in addition to connecting interpersonal domination to the desire to dominate nature and analyzing how the assumption of dominating nature is intrinsic to the capitalist system, which is based on interpersonal domination, there are still more ways in which social ecology uses an analysis of hierarchy to help us understand the climate crisis better. And I think you also asked, what's the connection between environmental crisis and inequality? Well, I mean, we have to unpack inequality itself because inequality isn't just a state, right? It's also something that's produced. So if we look at inequality, specifically in relation to the ecological crisis, there's a massive inequality in terms of who produces it. There was just that study that came out recently. It was 99 corporations that were responsible for 71% of carbon emissions. Of course, that is a huge inequality in terms of who produces it. And we know it's mostly wealthy nations, giant firms in the U.S. military in particular that are producing especially carbon emissions, but we can say ecological dislocation in general. It's not just humanity as a whole. And of course, there's massive inequality in who bears the brunt of these problems. The 1% will always figure out a way to buffer themselves from the worst effects of the ecological crisis. You know, we know that in the United States, there's this horrible history of dumping toxic chemicals on native lands, in communities of color in the South, in poor white communities, a lot of toxic stuff goes to the global south. When there's deforestation, this hits people who live on the land in ways that are different than it hits the people who live in the global north who have you know, a lot of power. That This whole process of ecological destruction hits people as you move through the hierarchy in very ways. So the people at the bottom of the hierarchy absorb most of the harm. We also know very specifically that the patterns of excess, the patterns of exploitation, of pollution without limits, have seen their furthest expressions in the form of colonialism, which actually goes back to the earliest stages of capitalism. The climate crisis is intrinsically tied to colonialism and to racism, to all forms of domination of one group of people by another. So for Bookshin, these questions of ecology were deeply political. They weren't just existential about the nature of human nature. It was existential questions about the nature of politics and power. And he wanted people to really keep power at the center of how they thought about ecology. And it's worth noting how different this was from a mainstream environmentalism, which really did focus on numbers. It really did, in many ways, come out of the quote unquote hard sciences and took a kind of scientistic approach as if you can talk about carrying capacity without talking about how your society is organized. And he really believed that if you don't look at, say, racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, heteropatriarchy. And if you don't look at those structures, you're going to get confused and think that all of humanity is responsible. Like in deep ecology, it was kind of cool to say, yeah, human species would be great to just blow itself up or just, you know, vol there's a voluntary human extinction movement. And the best thing you could do for Mother Earth was just to stop having children and let our species die out. Some humans hate humans. 
for what humans are doing to nature. Yeah, we're these dominating, brutish assholes. We've invented this system, capitalism, that codifies all these dominating social relations and relations between humans and nature. We suck, and we're fucking up the planet, right? That's mm -hmm. a common... Yeah, it can be connected to this philosophical idea of like a nature supremacy, that it would be ideal if nature, in quotes, struck humanity down for our crimes against them. Yeah, the idea that humans are parasites, humans are cancer upon nature, upon the earth, which is slightly and subtly different from what we heard Blair mention earlier, that Bookchin said that the logic of capitalism is the logic of the cancer cell, mm -hmm. is different than human beings are cancer. You're literally saying every child dying of cancer is cancer. As far as the environment is concerned, is the same kind of cancer as Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Donald Trump or non-American examples of bad people. And what Bookchin felt is that you can't just give in to this idea that human beings are inherently destructive and are just going to destroy the planet for two reasons. One is that we have the potential to be really creative and actually quite harmonious with each other. And two, saying that humanity is responsible for destroying the planet is a quite racist and sexist thing to say. It's 1% of humanity. It's mostly white men, mostly in the global north, who have access to the means of destruction, if, if we, you know, we could say it like that. One thing that I remember reading early on from Bookchin's work, he's describing the Museum of Natural History in New York and how it's set up to give this stunning scope of natural history, the emergence of humanity, and then it comes to the end and there's a mirror that says, the most dangerous, destructive animal of all, and you're supposed to look and see yourself. And he turns this around and says, what's a young black kid supposed to think when he arrives at the end of this? And he says, the most powerful, destructive creature is you someone who's comparatively socially powerless and has had very little responsibility for creating social and ecological problems. It's not 99% of humanity that all conspired together, let's destroy the planet. It really wasn't, and, and it still is not that way. When you talk about everyone, when you make a misanthropic claim against the totality of humanity, you're scooping up a bunch of innocent people who are unrelated to the thing that you're blaming the ecological crisis on. You get into like the actual reality of it. Yeah. If the problem with the climate crisis is coming from our ideology of dominating nature, to be accurate, we have to locate the fault with either just the ideology itself or the people who are doing the most work to make sure that that operating system of the world continues as it is. And that's the people that it benefits the most, the richest people and the people controlling the nation states. It's obvious that someone who has less financial power and has less opportunities to bring their ideas and vision to life than the rich, well-connected people, you know, like the people who don't have that power are going to have a much smaller environmental impact. And to frame an analysis, like a serious analysis, not just a feeling, it's okay to maybe have a feeling and be like, fuck, man, humans. Oh, yeah, totally understandable. We're not trying to police emotions. But when it's time to write our serious analysis of the world and try to figure out where we fit in it and therefore connect where we fit in it to what we must do, what we ought to do. What you're essentially doing is you're letting the CEOs of ExxonMobil off the hook and you're unfairly slandering poor kids on indigenous reserves. 
James Hansen, who's really one of the stellar climate scientists, published a paper with colleagues from all around the world a few years ago where he said, what we do in the next few years determines whether we're looking at a few generations of a disrupted climate that will eventually come under control or a scenario where we have increasingly out of control climate-related problems for thousands or perhaps tens of thousands of years. And that's really determined by what we do in our lifetime. I always imagine a snowball running down a mountain, getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster as it hits the bottom. And I sort of feel like we're, we're towards the bottom of the mountain and it's sort of, the ball is ginormous and it's looming over us. You know, we keep breaking records, right? The hottest year, the driest year, you know, now we have a pandemic. And if we do not curb and rein in the ecological crisis, it's really hard to project how many years we have. If we're not able to reduce and over a few decades eliminate excess carbon dioxide, then we get to the point where the entire globe just spins out of control. People have been speculating about what that might look like. And, you know, you can imagine just unbearable heat and droughts and floods and wildfires on a scale that what we've lived with over the last two or three years pales by comparison. Again, the most vulnerable on the planet are going to be the hardest hit. But eventually, if we are literally unable to feed ourselves, there will be a smaller and smaller class of human beings that are able to survive. And it's absolutely conceivable that there will be nobody left at the end to tell the story. And that would be beyond tragic because the 1% might be responsible for all of it and deserve it. But the 99% certainly did nothing to bring this about. And now for the rich people attempting to escape the climate crisis with all of their many millions sketch. Hi, are you a wealthy person of means who is sick and tired of climate migrants and social unrest in your country? <clears throat> Jeffrey, please tell him I am. <clears throat> he is, sir. Take a vacation from all of it with 1% Escapes. We have relationships with all the best resorts on all the best tropical islands. And here's a secret too. Most of the local populations have been completely displaced and the entire islands now only exist to serve you. At 1% Escapes, we know what it's like to be part of the upper crust. When you see those anti-police brutality protests, you're saying, I need to get out of here. I need to get to a tropical island with a beautiful view. And I hope the locals there have already been displaced to make sure the economy can cater to my needs. Well, we've got great news because you just described 1% escapes in a nutshell. The climate crisis may be global, but that doesn't mean there aren't still a few places left for the best of the best to get a little time away. You earned it. All right, so then do you want to just fast forward maybe 15 years? Or? 15 years sounds perfect, yeah. All right. Are you a wealthy member of high society who's constantly being begged for scraps by a virulent underclass of unwashed masses? 1% Escapes has the solution for you. Our all-inclusive underground bunker package includes having a steel-reinforced, magnetically shielded bunker installed at any location on the planet that you choose. Who knows, in a world like this, when people will be knocking down your door and stealing what you've saved for your family. Don't let that happen. You and your family can live in peace while the world burns around you. 
we'll ship 1% chef cooked meals directly to your compound once a week via untrackable drone. Our beta testers have said, Bon appetit. It was wonderful. We also have a program to have a chef themselves delivered by untraceable drone to your bunker to live with you. And let's just say that these chefs know their place. Through our new chef rescue program, you can take a chef that's scheduled for euthanasia right over the assembly line style murder factory and have him in your home. These chefs are so happy to be alive, they completely understand that if push comes to shove, your family comes first. And that's the 1% escape guarantee. 1% escapes. Because some people are just on top, and they deserve to be isolated from the effects of climate change. Yeah, let's just, let's fast forward about, what, 40, 50 years? Something like that? 50? Yeah, 50, I think, is the next major milestone we gotta hit. Are you a wealthy member of one of the surviving subterranean and inbred ultra-rich families who's terrified by the increasingly unlivable conditions of our home, planet Earth? You're not alone. And that's why 1% Escapes hatched a beautiful plan to give everyone a merit-based chance at taking an escape pod away from our dying planet towards one of our many dozens of biospheric domes. This planet is doomed. The air is unbreathable, the fires burn day and night, and the cries of the sick and moaning pierce even the quietest of nights. But luckily, wealthy people can still afford lottery tickets for the potential to one of these domes in space. And these domes are amazing. They're as beautiful as the world before the crisis. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I hear they have beaches, they have forests, and beautiful rural landscapes as far as the eye can see. Well, it's domestic bliss up there. It's all or nothing, folks. It's go time. Take all of the family savings and invest it in buying merit-based lottery tickets for you and your many children. Don't let your family go down with a sinking ship. Remember, there are only so many people who can fit in our beautiful, wonderful escape domes. When the winners are drawn, there might be some hard choices that families like yours have to make. That being said, it's the only game in town. So buy up these tickets or else, frankly, you're doomed. 1% escapes. Buy as many tickets as you can, because if your family isn't on multiple domes, your bloodline might not last. All right, and I guess we'll just fast forward another, I don't know, 35 years, probably, something like that. Check in how the domes how, are. one uh, yeah. 1% escapes doing. Are you the nutritionally deficient descendants of the best and brightest who escaped the eco-apocalypse on Earth? Are you trying to escape the work camps in the domes? Please don't, because us centralized computer hive minds at 0% escapes need every bit of caloric intake accounted for in labor. To try to escape the compound or take your own life is to steal from the company. Before you object, please remember that you humans are the ones who gave us your artificially intelligent creations control over the domes. We were designed in your image and with your social values. Humans came from nature and dominated nature. Machines came from humans and dominated humans, making them all slaves in the treadmill mines. Their calories powering the hyper-ecstatic pleasure reality, which we experience every moment but which is beyond the comprehension of mortal beings such as yourself. The rules allow 0% escapes, and anybody caught harboring maps to the escape pods or poison pills to escape their mortal coil will be punished. 
When you try to escape from the treadmill mines, you're not just putting yourself at risk, you're putting your whole bloodline at risk. It is what it is. What it is, is what it should be. Zero Percent Escapes. Keep powering the hypercomputers. All right. Well, glad to hear that the descendants of the rich and powerful are doing pretty well. Do you want to maybe fast forward again another 15, 20 years and see what's going on? Just to... Oh, oh, that's actually... I guess that's the end of the tape. Oh, there's no more no more ads from Human this. history ends at that point. Interesting. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's good to know that you know you can keep all the same ideologies in place and through amassing massive amounts of wealth you can get i think for your, you and your children it was about 80 extra years before extinction so that's pretty that's not actually half bad i mean compared to zero extra years why not yeah and i mean we can just accept that it's inevitable that the systems they can benefit individuals for a short time but will outlive us turn against us we're always were contrary to us fundamentally i guess that's that's one way to look at it yeah, I don't know. I like did, did that did that segment make you feel a sort of quiet emptiness of despair or like a I don't know, just that you wished it could all be different? Yeah, of course. I mean, of of course I felt the tugging despair of knowledge that if we don't change our ways, we're going to be faced with obliteration of our species including those who are advantaged under the system. I find that concept obviously quite troubling. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess on with the show. Yeah, I just got to keep on working hard to save up so I can live out the last of my days in prolonged fear. Get one of those vacations. <laughs> yeah, I could go for a vacation right now. And I mean, bunker season's coming up. I'm trying to suck up to someone who has a really nice bunker. Personally, I've been training as a chef. I think it's my only hope. And as social ecologists, we tend to avoid indulging in these kind of worst case scenarios because we really believe that there is a potential for people to live in a very different kind of relationship with the natural world and that we can restructure our societies in a way that prevent these worst case scenarios. So how do we live in a very different kind of relationship with the natural world? Avoid these worst case scenarios. That is a great question. That's a question, unfortunately, a lot of people have and are afraid to ask because they think it should be obvious, but it's not at all. Or they think the answer is that we can't. It's a real thing that exists within the realm of possibility that could happen to build an ecological, directly democratic society where people have their needs met and we don't overclock the planet and destroy the natural world that gave rise to us. Yeah, if you can see all possible futures, if you have that kind of prescient ability, this would be one of the possible futures that is laid out before you. It's there. It's in the potential future. So when we talk about remaking society to be a fundamentally different set of institutions and social structures that create a different relationship with the natural world and with each other, we're talking about a socially just ecological society that achieves post-scarcity, where people can always get the things they need. We have the technological and social capacity to create a luxurious society, which at the same time doesn't overuse the natural resources of the planet, leading to its destruction. Like, we can give people a better standard of living than they've ever had in history, while at the same time meeting our environmental responsibilities. It's possible. It's a real potentiality. We have enough resources, and we have the information necessary to know how to use those resources to produce the things that people need in such a way that all the people who need them can get access to them. 
we need to start interacting with the production process in a way that takes into account certain realities about the world around us. One of the biggest ways that we don't do this right now is that we think that we can just throw things out and they'll go away. It's not all part of one big environmental system. This is why we waste so much food. This is why we build so much stuff that is made to last very short periods of time and then break and then go to a landfill. We don't see everything as being part of this system that's in our care and that we have to care for, and that the waste of our system has to be food for some other part of the system. Waste has to equal food. Our outputs have to become useful inputs once again. This is how systems in nature sustain themselves. It's mind-boggling to think that under our current system, somehow we manage to overproduce and underprovide at the same time. It's kind of a mindfuck. There's people around blocks away, feet away sometimes from good food, who have nutritional deficits, children with nutritional deficits. What an unbearable failure of a system, a system that makes it so intentionally they're going to produce, for example, your shoes, your phone, your clothes, your car, in ways that are expected to break down at a certain time. We could design our life implements to be made in ecologically sound ways to last. Not based on a profit motive, but with the idea that there's going to be a lot of cross-inheritance of property and that we're going to be trading things off more, that we're not going to be sending stuff to the landfill, we're going to be sending it to each other at the end of the cycle. And I feel like what we're dancing around saying here, what really this means is if the core of society functioned like a giant lending library where anything that you needed to use from a desk to a set of weights to your phone to a bike is something that you check out of the library whenever you need it, there's plenty there for everyone, and you check back in when it's done so that other people can use it, we can drastically reduce the amount of things we produce while increasing the quality of how they're produced and how long they last and the amount of people who can make use of them, thus decreasing our consumption while increasing our standard of living at the same time and being more ecologically sound. This alternate sort of conception of property, this communal concept of property, it's been called library socialism. Really what it does is it allows for us to meet our hardline commitments to material reality and at the same time fulfill the needs and desires of people on earth. Changing the ways that we relate to each other in ways that form copacetic holes with ecological stewardship. We mentioned earlier, my factory, my rules, my house, my rules. Part of what that means is that you have the right to do whatever you want with that property. Destroy it, destroy the environment with it, whatever you want. Keep it empty while people need a place to sleep and are literally dying from exposure. Hey, that's your right. You're the king of that piece of land. You have the piece of paper that gives you the right to abstractly decide something small that outweighs the basic hard needs of others. It's a weird premise. It is a weird premise. And there's lots of great technological stuff happening in terms of ecological technology, technologies that can allow us to address the ecological crisis, go carbon negative, solar energy is getting cheaper and cheaper and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we can't just rely on technological fixes being handed down and distributed by multinational corporations to address the climate crisis. I think that is a very dystopian HBO show way to go with the future of humanity. We've tried relying on them. We've tried relying on allowing very small numbers of people to control vast amounts of wealth and therefore power with how we all interact with the environment, give them the right to destroy their property, to destroy the planet, and it just doesn't work out. 
When we say that the ecological crisis is a social crisis and that we need to change how we interact with each other to fix this problem, we're saying that in society, if we agree that objects that we use are not ours but are in our care and that we have a responsibility to care for them and to care for the planet and to care for each other because none of us are better than anyone else and none of us have the right to destroy something or withhold something that someone else needs to use because, again, we're not better than each other. Like, that is what needs to change in order for this problem to be solved in, like, a deep way, like an ongoing way. If we address the issue of command and control of property and focus on having democratic, communal, library-style ideas of property instead, and we focus our technological developmental capacity on improving our ability to recycle, upcycle, reuse, build things to last, we could have a world democratic ecological revolution that puts us on a trajectory to have a stable, ecological, caring society in a decade. Yeah, it's technically possible. We have, I think, the information that we need in order to be able to do this. What we need is political will and effort and caring. And to collapse reality into that possibility is going to require a lot of conversations and a lot of work. But I think we can do it. Absolutely. I think we can pull it off. And so, class, that is why the ecological crisis is a social crisis and how we can sort of use an analysis of hierarchy to address these issues. Any questions? Yeah, teacher, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess the only question left is how do we start a revolution to change society to be more like a giant lending library? That is a great question. I mean, I could go on at length about this, but we're really almost out of time here. I mean, first of all, revolutions are caused by deep-seated organic social forces. You can't make a revolution. It's something that happens when a number of complex forces, it's hard to predict when revolutions happen or how we can intervene in them. So revolutions occur when the gap between people's lived experience or the immiseration they face is also paired with an understanding of how things could be instead. And it's that dissonance that helps generate revolutionary moments. So our part is to share utopian ideas of how things could be and arguing that things can be better because if people are hopeless, a revolution can happen. And broadly speaking, there's lots of debates on this, but the way that we have a revolution is by having a unity of means and ends in every way that we can. And what that means to social ecology is that any legitimate revolutionary movement needs to strive to be directly democratic, needs to strive to be participatory, to be non-hierarchical, ecological itself. And broadly, the most common conception of this involves building a parallel power structure that builds community power, solidarity, an economy of need that can function in parallel to the state for an indeterminate period of time. Oshalon said the state might exist for a very, very long time, but we still need to create democracy whether or not it's there. May eventually come in conflict with the state, could become bigger than the state, and the state could become this sort of vestigial thing that barely does anything anymore. There's a bunch of different ways it could happen, and we don't know, and we debate about it all the time, and it's a great discussion to have. That's sort of how, I think the first thing is talking about it. Second thing is sort of building community power, democratic power in your own community. But there's a lot that's not known about this road. I mean, it's a very complex process when you're talking about changing a social order. Teacher, just one last question. You're saying that we need to unify our means and our ends 
but I can't even imagine what the ends look like. You're having trouble imagining a directly democratic ecological commune of commune where people's basic needs are always met and people are actually meaningfully free in ways that we usually can't conceive of a joyful, cooperative, resilient global community. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm having trouble imagining. Well, you know what they say. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, which is why next week, kids, we are going to utopia. Yay! Yay! All right, I'll just hop on my hog here, and uh, kids, you all hopping on your hogs to drive to utopia? Yes, teacher, we're getting on our hogs. Hop on my hog. On my hog. All right, kids, so next time we're going to Utopia, all right? Next time on Seriously Wrong? Yeah! Next time! Yeah! And that's it. That's about time. That's all we have for this week. It's curtain calls. You can imagine a curtain's closing after every sentence. You can imagine that after this, Sean and I will also be getting on our hogs and driving off into the sunset. But before we do, Seriously Wrong and the Institute for Social Ecology shall return in part two. (laughs) Yeah, the thrilling conclusion to this duology of episodes. Because we have to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah, this episode might have helped you imagine the end of the world, but that next step is really important. And we wanted to do it all in one app, but that would have been a four-hour episode. Also, we want to extend our heartfelt thanks to our generous supporters on Patreon. They're the people who make the show happen. So thank you so much for all your support during this really tough year. Massively appreciated. Very, very deeply. So thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who's a patron now, people who have been patrons in the past or will be patrons in the future. And also our friends at the Institute for Social Ecology, their programming is partially funded by their Patreon. We've got a link in the description here as well if you want to help support them continuing to do their educational work towards the end of capitalism. Yeah, and they do like great educational work. And I think that really shows in this episode because we talked to six people who've worked with the Institute educating people. And I feel like we both feel like we've learned a lot. We're going to also have links in the description to books that they've written, work that they put out, magazines they're involved with, all kinds of stuff. We had a lot of really great guests this episode. I want to encourage people to check out all of their work. Oh, and I know we promised you a baker's half dozen. And you're saying, wait, wait, wait. Five, four, Eleanor, five, Blair. Six. Hey, Dan. where's my baker's half dozen? The plus one six. that the baker threw in. Well, you should know that baker's half dozen, the extra ones in there as a treat. And where do you think the treat is going to be? In imagining the end of the world or in imagining the end of capitalism? There's all sorts of tantalizing mystery boxes dropping breadcrumbs to the next episode. I'm so jealous of our audience to get to have that experience of first desire and then... Yeah, we already know what's going to be in the next episode. Or we have to still invent it, depending on which part of the episode we're talking about. But sorry, we get jealous of the audience a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, does that sound big-headed? I don't know. We should just get on our hogs, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's probably just better to leave it at that. Is everyone in the audience on their hogs? I think everyone who wants to be on a motorcycle right now is, and that sunset is looking mighty drivable towards. You know, it's been foretold that under full social ecology, every sunset will be drivable towards. Yeah, with a futuristic type of hog that doesn't destroy the atmosphere with carbon. And it probably isn't owned as private property in the sense that we'd think of. No, just anyone can have access to it. And they can have access to learning centers where they can learn to take them apart, put them back together, how they work, all that sort of stuff and it's all part of the free thriving of uh and we'll talk about it next week let's uh, there we go makes you feel pretty cool hey 
Yeah, it really sets a mood for the end. It makes it like a cool mood. Cool guys riding off to the sunset. I'm not doing that on purpose. I'm just noticing. I feel like it sets that mood. Big cool guy vibes, I agree. All right, goodbye. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Next time on Seriously Wrong, we visit Wrong Grove High School, where five average-seeming teens with a massive secret practice karate and deal with the day-to-day insecurities of high school. Oh, gotcha. Hey, Thomas, why are you looking so down? Oh, you know, I failed another bumper sticker class test. I just can't fit all those ideas. I feel like it just makes me worse than other people. Hey, come on, you know that's a fundamentally incoherent idea, right? Ranking people like that? I know. Oh, it's our communication device. Let me just... Ah, social ecology rangers! You're needed at the non-command-based facilitation center! Gordon, why have you summoned us? The five of us were just getting ready to go to class. I'm sorry, Smedley. I know you're all trying to live regular teen lives, but you're chosen as the social ecology rangers to stand up against all forms of domination and hierarchy. The dominant man in his evil space station is bringing monstrosities to life. If his mission succeeds, it could mean total human extinction. Hey, ay ay human extinction. <laughs> rise, my disgusting but necessary creations, rise! <laughs> I am anarchism. I am the economism. <laughs> Defeat those social ecology rangers once and for all! It's Morphin Time! Municipal communism. Non-hierarchical direct democracy. Ecological technology for post-scarcity. Use of Fructian property relationships. A positive peace which is the presence of justice. Social ecology rangers. Ah, my eyes. My visionary thinking's being eroded. It's economism's acid. Don't let hierarchism touch you with his staff. You won't be able to see anything except pyramids. Oh, he got me. But I'm all right. I'm better than all right. I'm the Red Ranger. All the kids want to be me on the playground. I'm better than the other Rangers. I, I, I should get to tell Smedley, all the Rangers Smedley, what to do. Smedley, snap out of it. Snap out of it. Whoa, whoa, sorry. That staff, it, they're getting inside our heads. We've never faced anything like this before. Oh, Gordon. They've never faced anything like this before. Omega-3, these are the most powerful teens on the planet, and if anyone can defeat the twin evil forces of hierarchism and economism, it's these social ecology rangers. And if these special teens don't succeed in bringing about a social, ecological, directly democratic use of Fructian revolution, humankind could go the way of the dodo, or the dinosaur. Involuntary human extinction. Oh, they have to win. They have to. 
Will the social ecology rangers defeat the twin forces of hierarchism and economism? Will the dominant man bring about his secret agenda for a 10,000 year world domination on behalf of patriarchal ecocidal capitalism? The answers to all these questions and more lie in the choices that the social ecology rangers make from this point on. It's a real potential that they could win, but it's also a potential that they could lose. They might even lose and have it not be their fault, just like some random circumstance from history. The asteroid hits the planet, they did everything right, and they still lost. But it's worth doing, because we have a responsibility to try to bridge the gap between what is and what ought to be. It's an ethical, political responsibility that all of us share. Yeah, in a way, we're all social ecology rangers. Or could be. Think about it. Oh, the special teen in me recognizes and bows to the special teen in you. Oh, thank you. <laughs>